0: This is a head podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClair knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at slash Metaverse Impact. Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible expert about all the amazing things that they know that I don't know and that you might not know. Both of our minds are gonna get blown together on this show and we're gonna have so much fun doing it. I wanna remind you that if you're listening to this show, go check it out on YouTube. This episode is available on video. If you're watching on video, subscribe to us in your favorite podcast player. This week, we're talking about drugs. I grew up during America's war on drugs, and for those of you who weren't around at that time during the 90s, it's difficult to express just how intense that war was. And like all wars, it came with a massive propaganda campaign. Illegal drugs were wildly demonized. In my high school health class, marijuana and psychedelics were portrayed as demonic life destroyers. We were told horror stories about weed being laced with black tar heroin, about ecstasy burning holes in your brain. And I specifically remember being told a spooky story about a kid who did LSD and then thought he turned into an orange and that people kept coming up to him and peeling him. You know, I'm not sure if my health teacher thought that last one through because that story made LSD sound kind of uh, awesome. But the point was drugs are a death sentence. Don't do them. But, you know, in the years since, we've learned that there are, in fact, medical benefits to many of the drugs that we declared our national enemies decades ago. We've learned that cannabis can be useful for people with nausea, insomnia, arthritis or glaucoma. There's now strong evidence for medical use of psychedelics too. psilocybin, the active ingredient in hallucinogenic mushrooms, is proving useful for treating addiction and depression. I actually have friends who feel their depression was cured because of mushrooms. Actually cured. Even amphetamines can be useful. Hell, when I was in that high school health class, I was taking amphetamines prescribed to me by a doctor to treat my ADD. But there's another drug that's inching its way towards mainstream acceptance. MDMA, otherwise known as molly or ecstasy. When I was a kid, we were told that this was one of the most dangerous drugs, one that would literally drill holes in your brain while you were dancing and that you would never recover. Now, like any drug, there are limits on how much you can or should do, and MDMA is still very illegal. But what we are starting to learn from medical science is that MDMA is poised to be an incredible and life-changing therapeutic tool. It's been shown to help people recover from serious PTSD And that might just be the beginning. So how does a drug go from being public enemy number one to a new revolutionary therapy? What is that trajectory and how did it happen? Well, to answer that question, our guest today is journalist Rachel Neuer. She has a new book out called I Feel Love, MDMA, and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. But before we get to that interview... I want to remind you that if you want to support this show, head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Just five bucks a month gets you every episode of the podcast ad-free. You can join our community Discord. We even do a live Zoom book club. We'd love to see you there. And if you like stand-up comedy, please come see me. I am on tour right now. If you live in St. Louis, Maryland, or Rhode Island, come and see me. You can find tickets at adamconover.net. And now, without further ado, let's get to my interview with Rachel Neuer. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you have a new book out. I feel love uh, about MDMA. What is MDMA? First of all.
1: Aha. Uh That's a great question because so many people have confusion over that. And it's, uh, you know, in the title of the book, MDMA, uh, MDMA is known as ecstasy or Molly on the street. And um, just newsflash, everybody, ecstasy and Molly are indeed the same thing.
0: I remember when literally so I grew up in health class and everything they called it ecstasy. Yes. You should be scared of ecstasy. Then when I was in my late 20, let's see the, you know, the early 2010s friends of mine started like it became more popular again, but people started calling it Molly and they made a distinction. They were like, no, no, no. Molly's not ecstasy. Molly is like, it's cleaner and it huh. doesn't uh, have it was like it was totally. like a rebranding of the drug.
1: So first of all you're way cooler than me cuz when I decided <laughs> that I wanted to try ecstasy it was like 2013 2014 and I started asking all these people in Brooklyn, "Hey, do you have any ecstasy?" and someone pulled me aside and was like, "It's called Molly now." It <laughs> was so
0: embarrassing. <laughs> Ec- ecstasy by itself <laughs> sort of sounds like a made up drug for like a TV drama from the 90s like, "Have you tried ecstasy it's got such a weird <laughs> tone to it oh
1: uh, man well it was invented in the early 80s if that offers any explanation okay. marketing tool okay. in the early 80s uh so yeah the name molly was just a rebranding technique to try mm-hmm. to separate uh mdma from that ecstasy thing from all the right. negative connotations but they that are the same seen. thing they are supposed to be the same thing they uh-huh. technically both refer to mdma with this which is methylene dioxymethamphetamine all the chemistry I'm going to give you, hopefully, in this talk. Uh, but you know, you don't really know what your ecstasy or Molly contains unless you test it, because again, it's a street drug. It's legal. Right.
0: And it's a drug that I I know a lot of people who use it test. It's not a drug I've ever used. It is you. You did use it in the course of your research.
1: Yeah. Full disclosure, I have done ecstasy slash Molly slash MDMA. Oh yeah.
0: Good for you. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, you're you're cool. (laughs) Yes. And and I mean, what are the? So look, treat me like a newbie. What are the effects of this of this drug?
1: Uh, Okay, so there's we have to put it into kind of two different baskets here: the recreational effects, or the you're doing therapy and like working through your trauma effects, Mm because they're totally different. People who are doing MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, for example, are like, oh, why do they call this ecstasy? This is like horrible hard work uh-huh. um but i haven't done therapy with mdma before so i can't directly speak to that um yeah. what does mdma feel like i well first of all have you done lsd or mushrooms or i, I, I don't know if you go there? I'm, uh,
0: about every once every year or so oh, yeah. i'm like i gotta go to the beach and do some mushrooms and like same clear shit out and yeah. and you know i and actually i think there's a lot the evidence, uh, the therapeutic evidence has shown that that kind of usage is like it, it does have a long lasting effect mm-hmm. for like, the next couple months. Like that sort of thing. I always felt of like, oh, I feel like I have better perspective and it sort of mm-hmm. clears me out and and helps me. I always come to some sort of epiphany that's useful to me. Oh, that's so cool. Is like that's like uh, now sort of medically yeah. proven that yeah, that definitely. has an like, effect.
1: I- Usually do the same thing, except it's a forest, but that's OK.
0: Yeah. Um, forest anyway. is better than beach. But that's I work with yeah. what I have here in Los Angeles. So uh, yeah, exactly. Please yeah. Go ahead.
1: Um, well, anyway, I guess I asked that because, you know, how would you describe mushrooms to someone who's never done it? It's like a really hard yeah. thing to put words to. But I'll I'll attempt to do that for MDMA. Um, uh, for me, I guess a metaphor or whatever analogy metaphoric. ugh uh would be floating in like an ocean. You're kind of like rolling on these warm waves. Everything is calm. Everything is cool. You're part of something that's bigger than yourself, um, but you're still there. You're still me. Um, in terms of the physical effects, I mean, they call it rolling for a reason, and that's why I drew on the ocean um, analogy. Uh, it's these rolling waves of euphoria. It's kind of mm. like up and down, but it's not like dizzy or like a vomity like alcohol. Um, you just feel really good. and. For me, at least, it helps to clear my head and make me present in the moment in a Mm -hmm. way that I'm not usually there in my sober life. Like all my little like neurotic tendencies and anxieties and like, what am I going to do tonight? Like, oh, what about this thing I said to this person? It all just goes away. And I can really just be there in the moment, you know, listening to the music, dancing with my friends, feeling this unity. And yeah, people talk about a
0: feeling of love a lot. Right, yes. is it the case? I was like, wait, yeah. Sounds familiar <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Wait, the feeling hold on. love. <laughs> yeah, okay, it's the name of the book. Excuse yes. me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was like, right. that sounds familiar. Uh, yeah, you feel like just this pure sense of love. Like, yeah. you know, like I love myself, I love my friends, I love humanity, I love this earth, uh, I love yeah. this moment. Yeah, it's just this great sense of appreciation, gratitude, and love.
0: And just sticking with the sort of phenomenology of it for a second, When with my own drug experiences, which are limited, but sometimes I, I distinguish between a drug experience that feels true to me and one that feels imposed by the drug. For instance, like when I, when I get super high, when I'm, when I'm smoking weed, uh, you know, I'll feel really anxious about myself, uh, you know, like, oh God, that thing I said was so weird. Oh, everyone thinks I'm so weird. And then when I'm not high, I'm like, oh, that's ridiculous that I felt that way. That was false. But then when I take mushrooms, I, I not always, because sometimes I'll have, I'll have, you know, a, a delusion that I I later realize isn't true. But sometimes <laughs> I'll experience something where I'm like, oh, that was actually true. I actually accessed, you know, uh, I <laughs> like, like the sort of thing I feel on mushrooms is like, oh, I need to spend more time with my friends. And, and then I, and ding, then ding, I'm ding. not high anymore. And I'm like, yeah. that's actually true. And I take that with me for the rest of my life. A lot of other people have that experience as well. When you have that sense of euphoria or love or well-being on MDMA, do you feel that it's – which category do you put it in if you find that applicable?
1: I definitely – I do find it applicable. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. I definitely put it more in the mushroom category. Mm. Um, It really – it's not like, oh, I'm so wasted. I don't have control. I'm just acting out. Um, You still have – really good control much more so than with alcohol for example Mm -hmm. and you know i feel this way and also just sources i've talked to feel this way that it just kind of makes it's not it's like the drug brings an out of you but the drug is not imposing on you like as you put it so well um like you're speaking your truth but without these sort of barriers that we put up between each other with ourselves about you know am i cool like do i want to say this to this person like how am i being perceived? You can just speak more honestly than you can um, yeah. in sober life, at least for me normally.
0: And what about it pharmacologically causes that? I know that's a difficult thing to explain without really getting into the chemistry and the psychology. But uh, I mean, how how do you explain it?
1: Um, so MDMA lowers activity in the amygdala, which is the brain's fear center. So, you know, you're just turning down the volume on um, yeah, stress, fear, mm. hesitation, things like that. Um, And it heightens activity in information processing centers. So, you know, you're making more connections than you normally would in terms of more chemical stuff. So it really releases this flood of serotonin, which you can think of as this jack of all trades neurotransmitter, which are like chemical messengers in the brain. Yeah. Serotonin does all kinds of things like it regulates mood and behavior or mood and um, sleep, appetite, even some like blood stuff. Um, but serotonin is that like good feeling, like lovey, like that, that rolling feeling. There's also oxytocin, you know, also known as the love hormone. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a ton going on in the brain.
0: But a lot of these, uh, look, uh, we we so often hear these explanations about what's going on in the brain. Like serotonin is mm-hmm. the X chemical oxytocin is the Y chemical. And I've done enough stories, you know, in my past TV shows, et cetera, to know that those stories are often very simplistic. It's sort of like saying Oh, and your computer, like, you know, the electron is the uh, power particle or whatever. You know, like as though, no, there's something more complicated happening underneath. You're talking about software and hardware. Um, and, and so, uh, like, I've heard some of those explanations before, but they, o- they always strike me as a little bit simplistic. Do we, like, know what's happening at a more uh, granular level or no? Okay, I'm going to get into it. Okay, let's do it, please. <laughs> All
1: right. Um, so I'm now going to talk about this in the therapeutic context I, and i want to get into that yeah. great
0: because we know that it's useful for yeah, that so, now, this so is, tell me about. um
1: yeah so we're we're now reframing to what is happening in the brain when you do mdma assisted therapy and these are all this is all based off of studies in mice so you know there's the caveat take it um so mdma when it's administered therapeutically um in the set and setting of therapy so your mind is primed to do this therapeutic work and you're also in an atmosphere environment um where that's conducive. You know, you're not at a rave, for example, mm-hmm. you're in a therapist's office or with a, a mediator. Um, it reopens what's called a critical period in the brain. And mm. critical periods are something that I think we all sort of intuitively know, but we just don't know like this fancy neuroscience term for it. It's um these finite windows of malleability in the brain when we're primed to learn new skills. And these are the skills that like set us off for success in life. And the reason they exist is because there's an virtually unlimited number of things we can learn as a species. You know, think of all the languages, all the cultures, like we can't be born into the world knowing everything that we need to know. And it's not just humans that have this, like birds do it, you know, mammals, like pretty much everybody has a critical period for all kinds of things from speaking to seeing to hearing um, to bonding with your parents, you name it. So what MDMA seems to be doing in a therapeutic context is reopening a critical period for social reward learning. And that's just the natural reward that we get from being social, from talking to each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, think of how awful it felt in COVID, you know, if you were locked down, Um, that was because we weren't getting that social reward. Um, So MDMA is literally opening the brain up this critical period, and it's allowing you to process your trauma in a way that's Actually, rewiring neurons, forging new connections in the brain, mm. and so instead of uh you know feeling like I'm a monster for doing this or you know I can never be whole because of this thing that's done to me, and there's all these habits I've formed formed around it, like panic attacks or you know insomnia, all these things that your body's built up as neurologically wired defenses because of that trauma, yeah, you can interact with those things with this open critical period state and rewire them and um come out different with different habits that are going to set you up for success moving wow. forward.
0: It, it sounds like it's sort of creating some new neuroplasticity. I mean, I, I, not to misuse yeah. that word hopefully, but
1: so the the woman who led this research, her name's Gould Olin. She's at Johns Hopkins university. Mm-hmm. And she's like very stringent about the use of the word plasticity. <laughs> uh-huh. um, okay. Cause like some people now that her research is coming out, like um, some other researchers are like, Oh, psychedelics are like, neuroplastic agents which is not quite true because for example cocaine also induces plasticity in the brain cocaine uh, induces like brain-wide plasticity and that's one of the reasons why people think it's uh it can be addictive uh what mdma is doing is uh opening up plasticity in just a certain part of the brain and for like a certain period of time it's more um directed so guldolin refers to this as the plasticity of plasticity if you want to like wrap your head around that or meta plasticity because it's opening up uh, like these previous plastic windows. So, OK, yeah, it's like layers of plasticity here.
0: But this is uh, this is a, someone at Johns Hopkins. This yes. is like uh, clearly someone who really knows their stuff. And and this is really well vetted research, I would imagine. Yep. Uh, and so what is this therapy like? You sort of described it in a way, oh, it helps you reprocess your trauma. That sounds nice. Uh, but sounds a little bit tick-tocky, right? You know what I mean? In terms <laughs> yeah. of like, oh, that sounds great. I'd love to process my trauma. In terms of real, like a medical intervention, like what yeah. do we think that that MDMA therapy is capable of treating? Right,
1: yeah. So uh, there's been two phase three clinical trials and you know, phase three trials are like the last step toward FDA approval of a new drug. Uh, the first one was published in 2021. The results were pretty spectacular Um, Something like 66 percent of people who were enrolled in the study was around 100 people uh, came out a month later without a diagnosis of PTSD. And these are people with severe cases. We're talking like the average amount of time they had had PTSD was like 18 years, you know, and they tried like drugs. They tried all kinds of therapy and it just wasn't working like intractable seeming cases. Um, And the majority of people also had diminished PTSD symptoms, whether they were, you know, quote unquote cured or not. Um, so those results looked really good. The second phase three trial is now in p- the peer review process. I've heard that the results are equally good. Um, so pretty much MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD is almost certainly going to be approved by the FDA by this time next year. Wow! And, yeah. That's it's, incredible. It's crazy.
0: It's crazy. Um, and, and I can sort of see the connection between look i Uh, I do not have a psychology degree, but um, I I can understand the connection between creating some sort of plasticity or some sort of, you know, unearthing old pathways in the brain and creating new ones and PTSD, because I can just uh, intuitively PTSD sounds like a, you know, a groove that was dug Mm -hmm. in too deeply that like there's a pattern that your brain cannot get out of that every time it experiences X, Y happens, even if you don't want Y to happen. And so just sort of, we're going to uproot that shit and create some new yep. pathways. Seems like that intuitively should work. Is that, yep. I mean, am I off or? No,
1: I think that's, that works well. I mean, again, not a neuroscientist, but that sounds good to me. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And the applications here are like quite um just wide roving. So uh, the same researcher, Gould is now thinking like, okay, you know, pairing MDMA and therapy can address trauma, but what if we pair MDMA and like, occupational therapy for people for example who had stroke
0: Uh uh-huh
1: can we reopen a critical period for motor learning yeah and then give people back their their hand movements or their ability to speak or whatever after the stroke has taken out that part of their brain yeah so that's a study that they're hoping to get going in the next year uh but you know if he if she's right and mdma can just do critical periods like whatever it's kind of tweaked or fine-tuned to do based on the setting Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of applications,
0: potentially. I like- mean, could you like... Learn it to <laughs> use it to learn a language at a later that's what age. Was about to say. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, that's yeah. like one of the things. I'm yeah, like, ah, fuck! Exactly. I never. Yeah. Like I, I like, never. You can finally
1: learn Spanish. Yeah. or Whatever. Yeah. Like I'm not
0: 13 oh. anymore. I'm outside of that critical period exactly. for language learning. Like
1: it's so hard. Uh Yeah. Exactly. So you could like I don't know like hack your language learning or be like I always wanted to play the flute. Like let's do that. Maybe. We're we're, we're
0: gonna hope <laughs> the study says that. We're not gonna go. We're not gonna go out on the street and buy some MDMA and then take a Spanish class. Oh, Show yeah. up to. Some First day of Spanish 101 rolling.
1: Ooh, this is so fun. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Oh wow. But we go hope that one day science might science might allow yeah, us to. Yeah,
1: sure. That's a very important caveat. I mean that,
0: that's such incredible potential and it's so it it's so divergent from how MDMA or ecstasy was portrayed to me mm. as a kid in health class. Let's go back to the beginning. Okay. Uh how and, and sort of talk about how we got here. When was MDMA invented and by who and for what purpose? Okay,
1: great. Um So just a little side note, the history part of this book was like my favorite part. And Mm. I'm not a history person, but I was like, this is fascinating. Um, MDMA was actually invented. Well, it was patented on Christmas Eve 1912 by the German pharmaceutical company Merck. Okay. But they weren't after MDMA. They were like making this blood clotting agent. And MDMA was just this chemical intermediary on the way to get to that product they wanted. And um, we don't know who... Was the first person to discover its psychoactive properties. Mm-hmm. So Merck has like some files uh, showing that their researchers, you know, every few decades would kind of look at this, but they won't actually. Well, they say that nobody ever took it at Merck, but I don't know. They also. <laughs> Stop answering I my emails Nobody
0: <laughs> believes that. Yeah.
1: No. Yeah. No drug taking. Merck.
0: Come here. on. I mean, Nothing the guy who, here <laughs> the guy who invented LSD immediately just dipped his hands well, in the shit yeah, and like exactly. went nuts. So exactly. I have to imagine at Bayer they were doing heroin, and yeah. I have to imagine at Merck they were doing MDMA.
1: Good. I like that. Yeah. Okay. That's the world I want to live in. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> I mean, if you if, look, if you work at the bank. You get to take free money home. You work at a restaurant. You get to bring take free food home. I think if you work at Merck, you get to hey, we got a little extra. That's the world. Ecstasy yeah, lying that's, around. that's
1: how these things work. Take, have a weekend, <laughs> man. You know, totally.
0: So, uh, so we, but we don't know when they figured out it's
1: well, it's. Okay, so let's put Merck aside. We've moved beyond them. Um, so in the 1950s, the US Army got involved, which is not a good thing. But um, you know, this <laughs> is like, this is the time when the CIA was doing like MK Ultra stuff. Yeah. Um, they were the trying Army. to do mind control using exactly, psychedelics, famously. Exactly. So the CIA was interested in controlling individuals, like making, you know, the Soviet, whoever, like their puppet. Yeah. Whereas the Army wanted to just like spray entire, you know, Armies or villages or whatever, and make them like <laughs> dance around. Or
0: you MK know. Ultra is like, look, I, I'm normally a guy who debunks conspiracy theories. Yeah, MK Ultra is like the number one most ludicrous sounding conspiracy theory that is actually true. Yeah, that like the government was giving people psychedelics because they wanted to mind control it's entire so populations. It's so
1: crazy, yeah,
0: unbelievable. It's just like
1: so messed up. Yeah. So MDMA was swept up in that, um, you know, it had some kind of like code name. I I think it was like EA, like one nine seven five or something. I'd have to check that. But um, MDMA was on their list of stuff to test and they were testing a related chemical called MDA mm-hmm. and they accidentally killed someone because they gave him way too much of it. Okay. And also it was against his will. He's like a patient at this mental hospital in Manhattan, yeah. came yeah. in for depression. And he's like, I don't really like these injections you are giving me like, are these doing anything for me? And they're like, we're going to just. Keep
0: doing that. And then they killed him. Military normally kills people on purpose in this case. It, but yeah, they
1: messed up. Oh, yeah.
0: we, we, didn't, we did it on accident this time. That's not yeah, how it's supposed exactly, to work. Exactly,
1: exactly. They wrote something on his obituary, like, accidentally had a heart attack by oh unknown, God. you know, but yeah. later this was revealed. So anyway, they were like, oh, shit, we just killed someone. So let's backtrack and do some animal tests because we probably should have done that to begin with. So we know that they did fund animal tests on MDMA, which that was... um Like the late 50s. We don't know if they actually gave MDMA to a person Uh like uh, I found this PhD student at the University of Michigan who's like obsessed with this question. Yeah. And he's been on this um, FOIA Freedom of Information Act Odyssey with the army like for years. Yeah. And it looks like maybe they gave MDMA to somebody at Tulane. But in New Orleans. But we don't know. We don't have the smoking gun. But okay. anyway, so I just think it's important to point out that maybe the first person in the U.S. or ever to take MDMA was giving, given it against their will and given it by the army. Wow. Which is really messed up because we're now talking about using this to treat veterans, you know, and cure them uh-huh. of their trauma. Uh-huh. It's like dark.
0: Yeah, that's really that's really dark. We're, we're using it to treat veterans. From the trauma that they got from being in the military exactly. to maybe ameliorate some of the yeah. harms. Yeah. My and God. the military
1: maybe gave other people trauma by giving them these drugs.
0: Yeah. And is causing will. trauma around the world yeah. every day. <laughs> trauma the irony, the layers of irony here are really, really deep. Uh but but at some point it must have escaped yes. the military. Okay. Yeah. So and- let's
1: move beyond the military now. Um have you heard of this chemist? Uh, his name is Alexander Sasha Shulgin.
0: No, but I can't wait to hear okay, him. Okay,
1: great. He's such an interesting guy. Unfortunately, he's dead. It's like my great regret in life that I never got to meet him. But he's he has enough writing and enough friends still around that I feel like I got a sense of this incredible guy. So he was this psychedelic chemist in the Bay Area, obviously, um, <laughs> who synthesized like 200 unique psychoactive drugs. Like he just invented them. And then he would... Have these drug parties? Well, he'd try them on his himself first, and if they were interesting, he would invite his intellectual friends over and Dude. like a Saturday, and they'd sit around and try these drugs and like make little notes about what,
0: them. What, what period was this? What year?
1: Oh, the seventies. Okay, sounds about <laughs> sounds about right.
0: These are like the yeah. later seasons of Mad Men when yes. they're all doing oh, that. Uh huh. Yes. Yep. Okay. Love
1: that exactly. Yep. Um, so anyway, he was teaching at UC Berkeley, and uh he had this undergraduate named um Carl Reznikoff And Carl was like a fanboy of Shulgin, like really loved his work, had read all of his scientific papers, um, and was also like super into drugs. So Carl approached Shulgin, like worked up his nerve and was like, Hey, like, would you be my mentor for a summer research project? And he's like, you know, sure, my boy. And they went to <laughs> this lab at UC Berkeley, like in the summer of 1975. And Shulgin's like, what do you want to do? What do you want your project to be? And Carl was like, hmm, okay, I love this drug MDA, mm-hmm. but you know, maybe we could do something with that because Carl knew from personal experience that um, methamphetamine is more euphoric than amphetamine. Uh-huh. And the difference is this in methyl group that you just stick onto it. It's like a chemical side chain. So Carl's like, what would happen if we, put an N-methyl group on MDA to make it, um, well, Uh MDMA, Uh Yes, my acronyms. Um, So they did it, and Carl took some of it home, and he is the first person that we know by name, along with his girlfriend Judith Gipps, who have taken MDMA. Wow. And they did so on a beautiful afternoon in September 1975, and they took a ferry from San Francisco to Sausalito. The effects started to come on, and... They just had a great day. They are
0: like, we got to find a DJ. Yeah. We exactly. got to. Wh- where's <laughs> the rave at? Yeah,
1: exactly. So. <laughs> so, yeah, that is the first person we know by name to take MDMA. But um, almost certainly, you know, he wasn't the first, but he gets credit. because And they invented it in
0: a sense because they they put the M into MDMA. Yes. The second M.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, they they inv- they sort of brought it into invention in the human. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, I assume from there it just it just blossomed out world in outward into the drug world or pretty what?
1: much. So Shulgin tried it himself after that and was like, "Oh wow, yeah, this is good." Um, <laughs> and he,
0: he uh, out of all my two hundred yeah, drugs exactly. I've invented, like, this is my favorite. Eureka!
1: Yeah. Um, he compared it to a low calorie martini. And he's like, "Oh, <laughs> what? Uh, you know, I can like I can have a conversation. I'm like." chipper and Uh like interactive and charming low
0: calorie martini this really was a 70 (laughs) my god all right um but that's that's what they considered healthy then well exactly it's a light martini it's a light lunch martini
1: leave the olive out (laughs) please go on oh um yeah so shulgin introduced it to a buddy of his leo zeff leo was a therapist he was literally like packing up his office to retire um you know older guy everyone called him like an ideal grandpa and Shulgin came over and was like, hey, Leo, like, I have this new drug for you and I really want you to try it. And Leo's like, oh, like, I'm not doing that. I'm I'm done here. And then a couple of days later, Shulgin's phone rings and it's Leo. And he's like, OK, I'm not retiring. <laughs> <laughs> so Leo's um, just was like the Johnny Appleseed of MDMA uh-huh. and like planted it in the therapeutic community first in northern California and then just the entire country and into Europe. Uh, and that's when it caught the eye of the DEA.
0: Got it. Um, A lot of what you're describing here sounds a little bit similar to what happened with LSD, which I'm a little bit familiar with from Michael Pollan's book, Mm -hmm. How to Change Your Mind. He tells that history uh, really, really effectively. I really enjoyed that book. Um, And he talks about how, you know, it was discovered by scientists who were who are sort of researching it in a free way and sort of shared it with each other. Um and had Johnny Appleseed figures such mm-hmm, as like Timothy exactly, Leary who exactly. was kind of a a you know a, a Johnny Appleseed figure on steroids or on oh, speed yeah. or whatever yeah, like for just sure. like really pr- over promoted
1: yeah a little enthusiastic there yeah
0: but then it but then these drugs got so much attention mm-hmm. that the government ends up cracking down on right. them because they basically induced a moral panic about right. the about the drug in the public by sort of spreading it too fast I mean I don't want to put the blame on those people necessarily. Uh, pollen blames Leary quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, is, it, is, it, is it is it sounds like a similar story with MDMA? Well,
1: actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because there are like some critical differences in these stories. So the therapists in the MDMA case had seen what happened in LSD's case. Like it's about 10 years so, later at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're like, nope, like we are not going to have our drug taken away again. We're going to keep really quiet about this. Mm. So they were not like publishing about this. They were, you know, everyone was very hush hush about it. The problem is, though, that it escaped from the therapist's couch, as people say, to right. the dance floor. You know, people right. did find out about it. And then there were people who were like, oh, I can make a lot of money on this. Yeah. Um,
0: and they could make it. It wasn't like, how, how could it be manufactured yeah, it's by? It's easier to
1: make than LSD, you know, uh-huh. like a uh, upper level chemistry student could do it. Cool. Um, yeah. There was this group in particular. It's fascinating. They're called the Texas Group. And they were really like, the proliferators of MDMA on the recreational scene in the mm. early eighties. And a lot of the therapy people blame them for the DEA find out. Cause they were just like pumping it out. Like they were having like MDMA Tupperware parties. Uh-huh. You come over, get high and then, you know, go out, like yeah. sell your MDMA. They're
0: the salesman with a product, you know? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So what happens when the DEA starts cranking down?
1: Yeah. So the DEA picked up on this um, and we're like, OK, we're going to like this. They called it the kitty drug. They were like, all these kids in Dallas are doing this drug. Uh
0: huh. Um, Meaning probably like 21 year olds, I would imagine, like folks yeah, at raves mean, and stuff.
1: Yeah. Which is like a really like narrow way of looking at it because there were all kinds of people doing MDMA. But that's right. OK. Um, DEA, not good with subtleties. In details. Um, so they moved to schedule MDMA. They wanted to put on Schedule One, which is the strictly banned, you know, scary drugs like heroin and LSD, things with no uh, by definition, currently accepted medical use, things with a high potential of abuse. Um, so they went to, to put it there and they didn't think anything would happen. They just thought, you know, we're gonna move this through the process. But this group of therapists, Shulgan among them, um, and professors, you know, literally people from Harvard and doctors got together and we're like, no, no, no. Like we need to fight back on this. So they put together a case. They brought the D to court to argue that MDMA should actually be a schedule three drug,
0: Wow,
1: which would allow it to be used therapeutically and to be like researched on easily. What's but an also, example
0: of a schedule three drug that um, I would
1: know. Oh my gosh.
0: Okay. Really I don't spot. mean to put you on maybe,
1: the spot. Maybe ketamine. Okay. Yeah. yeah which right. is funny because ketamine has more potential for abuse than MDMA. Ketamine's uh-huh. actually addictive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, fact check me on the ketamine. But okay. There's a lot of Schedule Three drugs. You yeah, like know, a drug like could Google it. But... A,
0: a drug that's pretty well guarded, but you can get from a yeah, doctor like a in controlled a certain situation. Substance. Yeah.
1: You know that, but. Legal. Schedule, but
0: Schedule One means you like can't nothing. even do medical research on yeah, it. Yeah. It's like yeah.
1: I mean, you're supposedly supposed to be able to do medical research on it, but there's hmm. a reason why it's taken 38 years for us to finally be getting the research done right. on MDMA because the bureaucratic obstacles are just like incredible. Right. Um, So anyway, they put this case together. They brought it um, in front of a, a judge and they actually won their case. The judge was like, yeah, you guys are totally right. And he even had these like profound statements about, you know, I don't want people to look back in 100 years and feel like this was the Spanish Inquisition.
0: Wow. Um, sounds like they slipped the judge a little bit of. of yeah, yeah. That,
1: well, that's what the DEA said. They were like, your judgment is clouded. Like you're on their side. Like this is <laughs> BS. So, Look at his
0: pupils, man. Yeah, he's know, having he's a good like, time. Swaying a little bit. Why Core is it not supposed to be this much fun?
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, so the judge was like, you guys are right. DEA, you're wrong. It should be scheduled three, but um, don't ask me how like this law works. But as an admi- administrative law judge, his judgment was only like a suggestion and the uh-huh. DEA were like, right. yeah, we're not taking that suggestion. This wasn't a,
0: this wasn't like a federal court. This was an administrative law yeah. judge who can be overruled. There yeah. You there's the, the, those exist all over the federal government in, okay, in cool. various yeah, departments. I'm not yeah. a
1: law reporter. So thank you. Um, so yeah, they were just like, no, we're going to do this. Um, then this is really kind of like an interesting side note. It's like good jeopardy question. Um, this one of the Harvard professors appealed and for a three-month window that came to be known as the Grinspoon window because that's his last name. MDMA became legal again. And like people literally got out of jail and prison because of like this window. And wow. they, they wrote home like these cute like thank you notes. And <laughs> everybody did MDMA <laughs> legally. And then the window closed. And it's been closed since
0: then. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, but it despite it being closed, it's been a very popular. Yeah. Uh, it's no, uh, it was known at least when I was a kid as a party drug Yeah, and it same. was, it was a big part of like the, the war on drug, you know, messaging around, uh, oh, yeah. uh you, know, you know, the dangers of these drugs. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about that right after, right after we take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back with more Rachel Newer. Woo. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, delete me has been an indispensable tool for me. For many years, long before they even started advertising on this show, I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindelete.me.com/Adam and get twenty percent off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindelete.me.com/Adam. Okay, we're back with Rachel Neuer. Uh we're talking about MDMA. I just want to talk quickly about rave culture, mm. like cuz uh, it was such a important counterculture in I guess when you say late 80s, early 90s, yes. still through to today. How important was MDMA in the creation of that culture before we talk about how it was demonized?
1: Oh my gosh, MDMA I mean, there would be no rave culture without MDMA. It was a critical component. It drove... Okay, I'll just start the story.
0: Yeah, please. Um, Okay,
1: so MDMA, after it was criminalized in the U.S., it sort of jumped ship. I mean, it was still used in the U.S., but it moved on to Ibiza, the Spanish island off... Well, yeah, (laughs) off the coast of Spain, as Spanish islands are wont to do. Um, (laughs) And there it was discovered by... um, Let me try not to pronounce his name wrong. Paul Oakenfold, yes, the DJ, famous EDM DJ. Um, He and his mates had come down from the UK, and they were there for his birthday party. And they took MDMA, and they discovered house music. There was no house music in Britain; it was very like, like snooty alcohol people, you know, buttoned Mm -hmm. up. Um, And they brought this culture back to them with them to London. And they were like, we want to recreate this like beautiful Ibiza feeling here in like dreary. England. Yeah. So they opened up, well, they didn't open up clubs, but they started like DJ nights where they would feature house music and also MDMA. And it just absolutely exploded within a year. um, It was called like the second summer of love. Uh, MDMA was all over the UK. House music was all over the UK. It had spread, you know, north, south. But the problem was that clubs in the UK at this time closed at 1 or 2 a.m. And Mm -hmm. at that time, you're like just really starting to roll, which is the colloquial term for Uh the feeling of MDMA. Um, So people wanted to still dance. They still wanted to party. And that's how raves were invented. Raves were just these uh, impromptu parties that would pop up all over the UK. You know, it could be like under an overpass or in an abandoned warehouse or like an airport hangar. It just these parties sounded incredible. and that's how we got raves they were just a way to keep the party going because everybody was rolling on ecstasy
0: and how much of the you know story that was told about this drug in the US media was based on you know people being being frightened of that scene you yeah. know because i mean that's that's often the case right is mm-hmm. that is that adults are like oh these kids are mm-hmm. wearing blue jeans and smoking marijuana exactly. you know like there's that sort of oh the young people are frightening me element yes
1: that's exactly it. So uh the UK is similar to the US in that they have this like sort of puritan culture where like pleasure is bad. Uh-huh. It's like, "Oh my god, yeah, somewhere yes, yeah, somewhere someone might be having a good time. Oh my god." <laughs> uh, so like it's kind of like they would give things like heroin a pass cuz it's like, "Oh, you know, like this poor person they're addicted, they don't have a an option here." But with ecstasy, it's literally just like young kids going out to have a good time and to sort of realize their own pleasure. And this Mm -hmm. really freaked people out. They saw this as a threat to the fabric of, yeah, like moral culture of, you know, the authority, whatever. So the UK was the first to really like respond hard on this. They brought in all this like crazy legislation where they, band outdoor gatherings of like more than a hundred people where music was played and they even like defined music. They're like a series of repetitive beats.
0: So like it was I just, mean, it, yeah. yeah, that's definitely part of music. Yeah. If I had to come up with that, I would, that would be part of my definition. Sure.
1: Yeah. So, uh, they really, yeah, they, the authorities really tried to stamp rave culture out. Um, from there it spread though, to like other places in Europe, um, and also back to the United States. So the U.S. re-imported it through British expats starting in San Francisco. This is in the early 90s. And then the U.S. started with their own raves, which is what I guess you and I grew up hearing yeah. about. Yeah, I was a straight edge air kid. I definitely wasn't going to any raves. I know, I was growing yeah. up on Long
0: Island. And I, I remember, like, I was an internet kid. Oh, and nice. i Especially in, like, you know, around 98, 99. And I would read a lot of the people publishing things on the internet. that were writing, like, proto-blogs in Mm. San Francisco. And two things that were happening in San Francisco were, you know, the tech, the the first wave of the tech industry, which was exciting and new at the time. And then also like rave culture and like early Burning Man and stuff like that. So I remember reading, you know, just like art, just someone like, oh, I went to Burning Man and it was cool. And here's what we did or, you know, et cetera. Um, And got just like a little bit of window into what that scene was like by just by reading these, you know, really uh, computer programmers who were going and having a great time on the weekends. Oh, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you were cooler than me. I just
0: saw, I like, was not uh, cool. I don't know, I, you could have seen me at the time. I was not cool. I wasn't cool. I was like, a seventeen-year-old acne troll yeah. on my, you know, cable modem like connection with a big CRT oh my gosh. monitor, Incredible. teaching myself well. HTML. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but 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 yeah, it was like a it was a big it was a cultural moment in the yeah, US absolutely. as much as it was anywhere else. Absolutely. Um, but it was also like really, really demonized in the press here. Big and, time. And the drug itself was one of the most demonized. Like, I remember being shown, uh, you know, brain scans of, yes, if you take br- MDMA one time, yeah. notorious, yeah. it's funny when something is notorious oh. and you experience it as a kid. Yeah. Like, in yeah. health class, they showed us Yeah, the brain image, and they're like, "Here's what your brain looks like right before and right after." And there's whole, yeah, Swiss cheese in your brain. And I do remember thinking, like, that (laughs) did have an impact on me, and it's probably one of the reasons I've never, you know, of all the drugs that I've uh, experienced. MDMA was always like, that's kind of a scary one. I think it was partially because. Oh, they got to you. They got to you. Well, because I like my brain, you know? And so, (laughs) and and honestly, same thing happened with, uh, you know, for instance, LSD, the idea of flashbacks, which was really Mm. rammed into us, always sort of wigged me out as a kid because it felt like a permanent brain change. Mm. Whereas like, you know, mushrooms and weed, you don't hear about that kind of story. And so it's funny how much the propaganda worked on me without me realizing it. it. So- where, I, I mean, I guess I could ask where that propaganda comes from. I, I think we generally know from the drug war, but if there's any interesting story, I'd love to hear it. There it definitely how, is. How true is any of it?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I'll go into the propaganda first, then we'll yeah. get to the truth. Um, So after MDMA was scheduled, uh, all the government attention and research money, we're talking millions of dollars, went into quote-unquote proving that MDMA is neurotoxic, and that just means that it damages the brain. Mm. So there's just millions of dollars being pumped into labs to uh, basically prove this, which isn't how science is supposed to work. And no one did
0: any... It it sounds a little bit similar to the story with LSD and mushrooms, where after they become scheduled, then A, there's no money to do research on the potential benefits, and Mm -hmm, B, it becomes kind of career suicide. You don't want to be one of the people who's... You're you're a wacko if you want to research potential benefits, Mm -hmm. even though we don't we've never done the research. We don't know. Right. right?
1: Yeah. Career suicide is literally I have someone in the book saying that. So Mm. exactly. Um, There was those two things. So there was, you know, certain labs, one at Johns Hopkins, there was one in the UK and they were just like just hell bent on proving that this drug is going to eat holes in your brains. That's where that um, notorious image comes from. Um, Obviously, it doesn't. By the way, just everybody out there, MDMA does not eat holes in your brain. Um, they found that it does damage the end of se- uh, nerves that deal with serotonin, you know, back to our, the chemical we were talking about before. Um, but mostly these studies were really flawed in that they were doing tests on MDMA users and they weren't controlling for things like poly drug use. And most people uh, who are using MDMA are also drinking alcohol. Great. They're... Doing ketamine, cocaine, like whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to control for any effects of that. Also, like sleep deprivation, you know, you're at an, a rave all night, like that takes a toll. Yeah. Um, or if they were doing uh tests in animals, they were giving them like five times, 10 times, a hundred times the drose that any like human would ever take of this drug. Uh, the real whopper came though in the early aughts. Um, this lab at Johns Hopkins published a paper in the um, prestigious journal Science. Mm-hmm. And the paper said that um, basically MDMA was this super dangerous drug that was going to cause Parkinson's and all these young ravers because it affected dopamine, which was like this strange news flash because we never hear about dopamine with MDMA. It's always serotonin. And mm. It's like, wait, what? It's affecting the dopamine system. And they had given these uh, monkeys a bunch of drugs and, you know, several of the animals like collapsed and died and others were just like spazzing out. Um, And this made huge news. Uh, Some people were like, wait a minute, you know, like this doesn't seem right. Like we don't have ravers dropping dead on the floor and coming out with like Parkinson's. Well, okay, it turned out that they gave the monkeys methamphetamine. They
0: mixed up (laughs) their drugs.
1: Yeah. Like, how does that happen? And there was never... An explanation, a satisfying explanation for how, how in it? the world that happened, and
0: this was published in science. In one, science, one of the peer most reviewed. prestigious scientific yeah. journals yes. in the world. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: No bad bad news, yeah. and of course, everyone just came down really hard. Like, how could you do this? And you know, there had been people in the background the whole time, being like, "Guys, maybe you should like double check that data. This doesn't make sense."
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So they the research team blamed the chemical manufacturing company they're like oh they like switched their drugs and the chemical manufacturing company came out with a statement like uh no we didn't <laughs> so the the working theory on the ground which we'll probably never know the answer to is that probably a um like lab assistant or lab tech yeah. was like oh yeah like i want this mdma for me or perhaps they were <laughs> even sabotaging the lab by being like i'm gonna screw over my boss and like switch these drugs uh-huh. out but we'll never know but they were also
0: they also got the result they wanted yeah right? they, no they, they got the they, result they were trying they wanted. to find yes uh harms of mdma exactly because but that's what they, they were took, the they funding got, was paid they
1: were like in this rabid craze though of like not even being able to spot this flaw in their own data like that yeah. was a huge red flag that they found this result in a few monkeys with dopamine like like, why would that suddenly happen out of nowhere? So anyway, after that, they really shut up and they were kind of humiliated and sort of stopped publishing on it. And the whole neurotoxic thing, um, so what we know, now let's get to the truth part of that question. Um, MDMA does cause acute serotonin depletion. You know, you're dumping like 80% of your serotonin into your brain when you use MDMA. So you need to let that rebuild. Um, if people continue to use MDMA pretty frequently we're talking like once a week twice Mm -hmm. a week maybe even a couple times a month um you can damage the ends of your serotonin nerves um there's evidence that indicates that they do recover after you stop sort of pounding your brain with mdma in terms of actual like real world effects there's some studies that have shown like some slight differences in heavy mdma users and non-users like with recall, like vocabulary, dexterity of your non-dominant hand, things like that. But it's nothing like there's a hole in your brain.
0: Yeah. The, uh, so I've heard people who use MDMA describe there being a hangover mm. of like, you, you feel great at the time, but then the day afterward, you feel really bad. Right. Is that because of that serotonin? And, and and that's real.
1: Okay. So, okay. This is such an interesting question. Yeah. That's this huge, well-known Urban, I don't want to say myth because I do think there is some truth to that. I'm definitely not discounting people of their experience. It, um, what I can say is that it has never been picked up on in the therapeutic studies. Got it. So this
0: is like drug user folklore, yeah, which is such an interesting category of knowledge because sometimes it's true and sometimes it's false. Like my friends, or it can
1: be both. You know, when I was in
0: college, all my friends told me that they could drive when they were high and it was super safe when they were when they're when they were smoking weed. They're like, it's totally safe, and I was like, okay. And then years later, I was like, that's not true at all. Like, I didn't drive at the time. When yeah. I finally started driving, I was like, no oh way. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was a lie. But there's other forms of, you know, just sort of uh, stuff like set and setting mm-hmm. that is, uh, we, totally we now know yeah. is real, but came out of sort yeah. of drug user culture.
1: Yeah. Well, I won't say that it's like false because we haven't. Like scientists haven't really studied it in recreational users Yeah. like recreational users have been like the guinea pigs of MDMA use, but on their own, you know, like nobody ever studies them, but there's so much there to be done. So if any grad students are listening, like there's your project. What you
0: should do is just go to a rave and just start collecting evidence. Yeah, exactly. Just just do do the work. Do the work. (laughs)
1: Um, So, yeah, that. Like the suicide Tuesdays, as it's called, or the midweek blues, you know, you take you take MDMA and a few days later, you just feel horrible and like want to kill yourself. That's never been picked up on in these controlled clinical studies. Interesting. Um, And but people say it and I'm not like, oh, you guys are lying. Some people think that maybe it isn't the MDMA per se. Maybe it's because you've been out dancing all night and not eating and just like abusing your body and probably doing other drugs or drinking as well. Yeah. But I still think that there might be some truth there because, for example, I have friends who do go raving and they do other drugs and they say they still get that effect when they do MDMA. Mm. I personally don't. I feel great after I do MDMA. Like I'm sleepy, but I feel happy because I can look back kind of like you with your mushrooms to that experience and think I feel so
0: good. Even when I take mushrooms, the the next day I feel a little bit down. There's just a little bit of a rebound. You know, I mean, Hmm. uh, uh, Judith Griselle, who wrote this wonderful book, Never Enough, uh, Mm. and I've interviewed on the show before about it's about addiction. And and she sort of describes how, you know, your body and your brain is like a homeostasis machine, that it always sort of rebounds to its Mm -hmm. status quo. And so that means that you are always going to have a snapback. Yeah. um, And that principle makes sense. She also describes in that book. Uh, you know, she she had had a struggle with addiction, went on to become a neuroscientist, Um, talked about one of her students, maybe a grad student who she worked with a lot, who was very involved in rave culture and how he sort of she saw the negative effects of a lot of MDM, regular, regular mm-hmm. MDMA yeah. use where he just became less sharp. Yeah. And he also felt that mm-hmm. at, at the end of the number right. of years, he was like, oh, my God, I kind of fucked myself up a little right. bit. And so that is a thing that can happen. Yeah,
1: definitely. Like I've talked to psychiatrists and, you know, I always ask, like, have you ever had a patient, you know, who had MDMA problems? And the thing about MDMA is it doesn't cause a physical addiction because the more you do it, the less good it feels because you literally need that serotonin. Yeah. And if you don't have it, it's just not going to feel good. It's going to feel like really speedy and like Uh jaw clenchy and like anxiety. Because you need need to replenish. Yeah, exactly. Um, So there are diminishing effects over a time if you use it too much. but. People can have behavioral addictions. You know, they're seeking something else on the dance floor. Or they just want to go out all the time and just keep doing it. Um,
0: so how how did we get to understand the therapeutic benefits? Because, you know, it must again, we've had probably 30 years of all of this negative research. It's been massively like yes, drug war yes. research that's been funded. Uh, what what was the thaw that caused mm. us to learn? Hold on a sec. Because you said. So that negative research came out of Johns Hopkins. Yeah, and now yeah, yeah. you say currently there's yep. research being done at Johns Hopkins about the positive benefits. Right. So what, what caused that sea change?
1: Um, If I had to summarize it in a name, it would be a person named Rick Doblin. Mm-hmm. So Rick was this like wide eyed hippie kid and, you know, searching for himself, uh, trying to find himself through a bunch of LSD, like really into that. He, he grew up on tales of the Holocaust around the dinner table. So, like, he always had this fear that, like, people around him could just, like, snap into this genocidal mania at any time and wanted to find... <laughs> Sounds like, like a, a real
0: relaxed hippie kid oh, who's yeah. was constantly like, worried about really genocide. Chilled. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. all right. He so, contains multitudes, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, there you go. It's
0: hilarious. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, so he was kind of, like, searching for his way in the world and, like, his big purpose but also wanting his purpose to be, like, to bring good to the world and, like, yeah uh you know prevent things like genocide and um just before mdma scheduling he was introduced to it um out at esalen which is this like retreat center in california where uh, the last episode of Mad Men actually was when don draper's like oh sure yeah that's he's that's sitting like he's a meditating esalen yeah some
0: classic yeah. uh west coast hippie exactly stuff.
1: Yeah. exactly um Anyway, so Rick Doblin kind of gets sucked into this DEA case and he decides to make MDMA like his thing. He's like, you know what? I'm going to bring MDMA back to the light of scientific and medical credibility. And the way to do that is to work through the system, to like bring it up and to get FDA approval of this drug, to do all this rigorous science, to get like serious people. Like Rick goes to Harvard and gets his PhD so he can be serious. And. He basically just spends the rest of his life dedicated to this cause. And he um, he founded a, a nonprofit organization to do this. It's the acronym is MAPS. So MAPS has been the sponsor of all the trials. Um, for the first, the majority of the time MAPS existed, he did this all with um, fundraising. He raised, I was going to say, like, who is... Yeah.
0: Who's donating money to this? Yeah. Just like you some would be, billionaires you would who. You'd be so surprised. Their MDMA?
1: Yeah, like on both sides of the political aisle, mm. um, you know, people are into drugs. They're into, <laughs> they're also into like our soldiers. So Rick, yeah. you know, in the 90s realized that our early odds. That's oh, the veteran connection. Yeah, he's like, you know what? Because at first he was like, oh, let's use MDMA to treat existential anxiety and people who have terminal cancer. But. Uh-huh. You know, we're all going to die, but it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about that. Yeah. Whereas you can be like, oh, we need to heal our veterans. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's that's a really good idea and important.
0: But it is weird that we so often use veterans as an excuse to do something Uh like whenever you whenever there's some company building a new robot and they're worried it's going to freak everybody out. They're like, it's to help veterans, Uh, you know, or whatever. It's like that's just if you want to get something done, say it's to help a veteran. It, it, It makes Really using veterans as a prop in a lot of ways oh, man. some of the I, I don't want to go too far. But
1: in this case, at least I think it's it, it good actually because does the veterans help, yeah. are like, yes. We like <laughs> we sign on, like there's all yeah, these totally. veteran organizations that are spearheading this work themselves. Cool. So like I think it's cool with the veterans in this case. In this case, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Um so yeah, Rick just like through the force of his like personality and his like will has sort of built this organization like No matter what happened, kept going, and you know, thirty-eight years later, he's about to see it happen.
0: And they, uh, in the research that they sponsored, bore out like it actually showed. Yeah, this is their research. Yeah, I mean, he
1: was like right the entire time, which obviously, you know, like the judge knew that back in nineteen eighty-five. But you know, finally, we can come around to that. So
0: let's talk about what this therapy actually is. Like, if you're a, you know, if you're a veteran or anyone else who's experienced some real trauma, you got some serious PTSD. And you want this therapy. What does the therapy look like? Mm-hmm. How, do, how does it work?
1: Okay. So MAPS has developed this protocol over the past 20 years. And so you would, um, let's say the therapy is approved, covered by your insurance or the VA covers it. Um, you go and you meet with your therapist a few times before you do any drugs, just to you know get to know your therapist, like talk about your issues, what you want to address. Then the day of the session, you come in, you take a pill, um, you're going to have two therapists Lay back on a couch, you put on some eye shades, put on some headphones with some music. Um, and anytime you want, you can you know take those out and discuss with your therapist. But that's just to kind of allow you to tap into yourself and go inside. Um, and you're going to be there all day. This is going to usually like a seven or eight hour session. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you take the first pill. It takes anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour to for you to start feeling the effects. Then you're in it. And then you have a choice to take what's called a booster. It's like a like a half dose mm-hmm. just to kind of give you more uh, bandwidth or yeah. um, runway there on the experience. So that's all day. Um, then you come back for what's called integration. And that just means talking to your therapist about you know what you learned, uh, what you took away from the experience and how you're going to actually integrate those lessons into your life. Because, you know. It's great to have those revelations, but unless you actually apply them, then this isn't going to have an effect.
0: But what actually happens when you have the eye shades on? I mean, Mm. I I read so Michael Pollan's book. He doesn't Mm. talk about MDMA, but he does. uh, I don't think. No, he doesn't. He he does LSD therapy. Mm -hmm. He does um, uh, mushrooms. Yeah. And so he describes taking like a massive dose of mushrooms and then putting the putting the, uh, the, the eye shade on. There's music playing. And then he. Just has the most visual trip, the yeah. most like ego dissolution, like he's just in another world. Uh, and you know the the therapist they're talking to him, et cetera. Is it anything close to that, or what is the act? You said you haven't done it, but what do, what what do people experience, and what actually happens during those really, hours?
1: Um, everybody is different, and MDMA assisted therapy, your reaction is going to be different. Like some people get really chatty. You know, they take off their their headphones and their um eye shades and they just want to talk to their therapist about their trauma some people don't talk at all they just go into themselves some people when they have the eye shades on they see things in their mind and that could be like past memories that you're revisiting or it could be something like completely uh like made up like one guy a veteran i talked to from the vietnam war he went to this like moonscape but he realized it like represented his like childhood or something um, so it could, yeah, yeah. I don't want to like <laughs> do him a disservice, sure, but, sure. Yeah. Um. anyway, so it can be very trippy, but it can also be like just you and I having a conversation, but I'm like way more open and able to tap into my feelings. Yeah. But a lot of people say that what they ultimately experience is just, um, one woman described it as before she was like experiencing her trauma, like a rat in a maze, you know, she, there were blackout parts of it. There were things she just couldn't make sense of. And after it was like, she was looking above the maze and she could just see all the little nooks and crannies and the solution for getting through it. Yeah. Just kind of see things as a whole and in a new perspective that she couldn't before.
0: And what is the therapist's role in this?
1: Uh, Just to hold space in some cases, you know, make yeah. sure you're okay. Um, check in on you. Um, you know, they'll, they'll come in if you're being really quiet and, you know, ask if you're okay, if there's anything you want to talk about or like for the really chatty people, they're there to do therapy with you and just, yeah. you know, what are you feeling? But it's usually not, it's not a guided thing. It's it's yeah. you doing the work, like you're being empowered to heal yourself, basically. But how, do, how do
0: you know if you're taking it, and I know you haven't done this, so maybe it's hard to describe, but if what it's doing is it's uprooting all these pathways and laying down new ones, how do you know that you're gonna be able to heal your mm. trauma rather than deepening it or right. fucking it up in some way? Right. Like like I, w- I would want some guidance there, you know? Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean- that is what the like the pre sessions are for to mm. kind of lay the groundwork for that healing and also the integration sessions why those are so integral um so one thing that uh experts compare it to is it it sounds really mushy, but you're trying to tap into your like inner healing intelligence i mean mm. it sounds a little woo woo but uh. An ER doctor who's at the helm of these trials, he switched from ER to psychiatry because he's like, I'm seeing people when they're like at the end of their trauma, I want to cure the actual trauma before they try to kill themselves or whatever. Um, He compared it to, okay, when someone comes into the ER, I can clean the wound, I can remove the bullet, I can, you know, lay the foundations for their body to heal them. But I can't actually make that healing process happen myself. Mm. I'm just facilitating it right and that's kind of what's happening here or that's what people think is happening you know it's your own inner healing intelligence facilitating that mental healing
0: yeah and that's uh, that's that's sort of a new frontier in medicine as well thinking about you know the body's ability to heal itself and medicine is facilitating it and to the extent that there's research about alternative medicine being effective Mm -hmm. it's because alternative medicine can help Kickstart the body's uh, ability to heal itself. It's one of those weird areas where, you know, you have real medical doctors who, who sound a little woo woo. They yep, sound like they're yep. reading Gwyneth's newsletter. <laughs> but, oh, hold on a second. This is real research, right? Yeah. Um, yeah it's, and and it's, this is it seems MDMA seems to sort of fall into that same nexus yeah, a little bit. Yeah,
1: definitely. And I think it sounds weird to us because we've all just been programmed on like 30 years of this. Like, here's your pill. Like, you right. know. Every day, take this pill and it'll make your depression or whatever go away. And it's really disempowering. You know, it's like, oh, this isn't something I can do anything about. I just have to take this pill. The pill
0: heals me. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Um, yeah, a simple drug for a simple bug, they say. But that doesn't really work when you're dealing with something as complex as the human psyche.
0: Yeah. Uh, What do we know about the differences between MDMA and some of the other drugs that people – I mean, we're currently in this flowering of Mm. research around psychedelic drugs. Um, are, uh, mushrooms, mm-hmm. ketamine, LSD to a certain extent. Uh, th- there are similar stories about those drugs. Yeah. Uh, is, is this uh, is is this sort of therapy a feature of all psychedelic drugs, or is there something special about MDMA that makes it effective at some things more than some of these other drugs? It's
1: such a timely question because back to our friend Gould Dolan at Johns Hopkins, mm-hmm. she had a study come out today. Congrats, Gould! Oh wow! In the journal as we're Navy, taping this. Yeah, yeah, yeah today. Um, In the journal Nature, which is like the other big journal besides science, and the findings there are that all these drugs open the critical period, just like MDMA. Her MDMA finding was from 2019. Now she's come back with new research, and it's showing that LSD, psilocybin, ibogaine, and ketamine all reopen this critical period for, for healing. The interesting thing is that they do it for different durations of time. Mm. So like ketamines is quite short, whereas ibogaine, which is like up to a 36 hour trip, is like a month long. Wow. So the implications there are that um, some psychedelics are more powerful than others for this you know, neurological reprocessing or opening. And also that even once the drug clears your system, you're probably still in this period of openness and impressionability. So You know, that's why the integration sessions after are so important for making sure you, yeah, you don't re traumatize yourself, that you go toward a path of healing. And also why you need to be coming into the world gently. Like you shouldn't just be shoved back into, you know, your abusive relationship or whatever social factors are, you know, put you there to begin with, because then it's just going to be all the more traumatizing.
0: When I hear about this research, it really makes me think about how little we still know about oh my the gosh. brain that that yeah. what, what you're described, what you've described as the mechanisms for how this works, mm-hmm. the both serotonin, the neurotransmitter piece, and then the more sort of functional psychology piece of it about critical period. I'm like, these sound like those don't sound wrong, but they sound like scraps of the story. Right? Like it, it to yeah. me still sounds like we're, we're realizing, oh, if we jam this chemical into the brain, it'll do stuff in a way that we find useful, mm-hmm. and we we can learn a technique to combine it with therapy. Yeah. But in terms of how the brain actually functions, what these traumas actually are, yeah. what the drug is actually doing, our knowledge still seems so fuzzy. It is. And, and that seems very exciting, because we're learning yeah. so much new things. But it, it highlights how little we know. Oh,
1: yeah. We don't know anything. Like, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, Yeah. It's really exciting, but it's also like, let's get there, let's get there, let's get there, let's help people. But um, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, the pace of development, it's accelerating, but um, yeah, I think we're just beginning.
0: And you really think that this is going, this therapy, MDMA therapy is going to be approved Mm -hmm. by the FDA next year?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, the data are there, so there's no reason why it wouldn't.
0: But the, I mean, this is just mind blowing as a child of the '90s, yeah. you know, to to go from Likewise. seeing those diagrams in health class, yeah. And MDMA still being a Schedule One drug? Is it still well?
1: Once it's approved by the FDA, the DEA by definition must take it out of Schedule One because oh. it's a currently approved or it's a currently used medicine, whatever right. their uh, lingo is. Got it. Um, so once the DEA deschedules it to a lesser schedule. Um, then states also have to do their own things. So about half of our states just follow the DEA's lead and does whatever they do, mm-hmm. but then half, uh, have to like do their own legislation. So maps Rick Doblin's group is been working with those states Those half to try to get them sort of ahead of the game so that once this therapy is approved, we can all just, yeah, out the gate, start applying it to people who need it.
0: I mean, the, uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, okay. So what is, we have to wrap it up. I guess I could talk about this for, for hours, but, um, if people are listening to this and are like, oh, this sounds like something I might want to try. However, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to fuck myself up. I don't want to do anything dangerous, right? I'd like to, what is the responsible course for folks who you know, like me are saying, okay, this conflicts with what I hear in health class. There's some interesting mm. stuff here. Um, maybe I want to see if I could find benefits for myself. What is the responsible course to exploring that?
1: Are you, are you a person who wants to just go the medical route and do it um, therapeutically, like wait a year and do this legally? Or are you a person who wants to like get your hands on some
0: MDMA and do it like today? <laughs> <laughs> let's say that I'm, let's say that I'm somewhere in between. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I love my here in California. Mm-hmm. I love my legal weed dispensary. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I love that so nice. I, I love that it's drug culture and it's uh. also and they I go in and they tell me that these terpenes will make you less anxious. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that sounds like bullshit, but I, I like that you're <laughs> I like that you're telling me and I know that everything in here is safe. I'm yeah. not having to um you know what I'm not a fan of is I'm not a fan of I have friends who are like, I'm throwing a party and I'm getting all my drugs tested to make sure there's no fentanyl in yeah. them. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. you know what? If there might be fentanyl in something, then that's a turnoff for me as a, that's a, that's a good turnoff to have. I don't love that level of risk. So I, I, but I like, you know, Hey, we're all agreed that this is pretty safe Mm -hmm. and this isn't a mind expanding experience to have. And that's, that's sort of where I, where I am. Cool. Uh, Let's say I'm there. Okay. So, yeah.
1: Okay. So I think you have two options in that case. You can just wait mm-hmm. until hopefully this time next year and then you can work through your insurance if you have it or pay out of pocket or MAPS is I also... I mean, it would be
0: incredible if my insurance company a year from now yeah, is the, like approving the MDMA therapy. They
1: seem into it. You know, it's... Yeah, that's that's um, okay. yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm just, my mind is blown. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: OK, so there's that. OK, option. so you can
1: wait and do it through your insurance or yeah. pay out of pocket or MAPS is trying to come up with these ways for people who don't have insurance or can't afford it to still have access. That's a whole other thing. Or if you want to be a little more risky, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have to buy your drugs from the street. And yes, that's like the problem with prohibition. Those are illegal drugs. You right. don't know what's in it, you know. Right. Fentanyl has not been a thing, really, with uh, mixing into the MDMA stream, but...
0: See, see I, and we don't... I generally don't have this problem with mushrooms, because I feel like mushrooms are yeah. always... Yeah, you're like,
1: this is a mushroom. It's a, it's yeah. a,
0: literally a mushroom, and it is always seems like it's grown just one step removed. Yeah. It's just some dude's got a terrarium yeah. somewhere. There isn't, like, a drug cartel, tr- yeah. you know, underground chain, because yeah. mushrooms are not, frankly, that popular. Yeah. And... So it's just like, yeah, I I know a guy who's got yeah. a room full of mushrooms yeah, and, and he you gave can, me like, some. Yeah, you Like really pick out
1: your little mushroom if yeah, you want exactly. to. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not the case for MDMA unless okay. you've got your chemist, you know, in your pocket. Yeah. Um, So I would say, you know, figure out someone you trust, who's your friend, who's done it before, who has a guy, get it from the guy. But then don't <laughs> just test your drugs at home, kids. Uh, yeah, okay. Everyone's like, oh yeah, I did this like, test strip or whatever I actually if you can afford it send your drugs out to a lab there's Mm -hmm. a lab in Spain because Spain offers free drug testing for its citizens but there's this nonprofit there called energy control the
0: government of Spain yeah incredible now that's the government working for you yeah the government doing drug tests. also the Netherlands
1: the Netherlands is like top notch like you can just bring your pills in and it's like this beautiful culture Joe
0: Biden take a note that's what we want run on that in 2024 <laughs> the
1: people want drug testing the people want
0: free legal drug testing yes. and the fentanyl uh, yeah. uh the, like by yeah, yeah and, and the massacre totally. by giving us drug seriously, testing seriously or just give us drugs but we'll get to that later
1: okay <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah i'm getting crazy now uh anyway you can uh send a sample to spain to energy control give them a little money and they will not only test it for impurities they'll tell you the percentage concentration which is really important because uh, you want to get your dosing right Right. You know, you don't yep. want to take too much because then you're going to have a really bad time or potentially put yourself in danger. Yeah. And you also you don't want to take too little because you want to have a yeah. good time. This
0: is one of the reasons I like the legal weed dispensary mm-hmm. is they've got the yeah. THC concentration exactly. on all you the things. You know what you're getting. Yeah. This is
1: why legal drug trade is like a positive. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know what you're getting. You can follow the instructions. You can mm-hmm. get information. So.
0: And in terms of Safe usage in terms of not not, you know, having a negative Mm -hmm. neurological effect. Very concerned. What what are the general guidelines there?
1: So you need to get your dosing right. Um, Everybody's different, like heavier people are going to need a little more. But to stay safe, if you've never done it, you know, start small and work your way up. Um, A good starting dose would be one hundred and twenty five milligrams. So get a scale. Um, then if you want a booster, you could do like 70 milligrams. If you're a little bit smaller, you could do,
0: if you're, this is the most detailed drug information I've ever gotten on a podcast, but if you're <laughs> weighing, if you, if you're weighing a yeah. pill, is that the weight of the oh, active ingredient?
1: Um, so typically in the U S you're getting crystals or powder. Oh, okay. In the, in, I'm so,
0: I, Okay. I just showed myself to be a nerd. Doesn't At least even know. you knew it was called Molly. I don't even know the form factor. At least you knew it was called I'm Molly. I'm so embarrassed. So do you how do you take the the cocaine pill? Oh, it's such a it's fucking a judgment-free dork. zone, everyone. My God. I'm, a, I'm humiliated. Okay, so okay, so it's a powder. So it actually is a pure chemical. Yeah. Usually
1: he well, that's that's why it's called Molly, because like molecule, it's like this cutesy shorthand. Oh. But it's it's not a pure chemical. It's like it's is in your powder. Like there could be right. whatever some, in your powder. some
0: medium uh, that yeah, is. That exactly. Is and like, in.
1: you know, they could be mixing in like meth. They could be mixing in caffeine. Like you don't know what is in that powder until right. you test it. Right. So you need to test it.
0: Okay. So uh, it, it would probably be good to find a just, uh, test it yourself. Also, maybe find a source that you that who knows how to do testing, who's going to help you yeah. out. Like, yeah. Or just go to
1: that website energy Uh control everyone okay yeah uh
0: but it's again it's just so incredible to be talking about this in a a way about the therapeutic benefits the fda approving and like uh in in, coming from such a prohibitionist space it's like it's giving me a sense of vertigo uh, in terms of of what's possible now
1: yeah it's crazy just how quickly things change i mean but think about the legalization of weed that was like You know, it's still schedule one, which is mind blowing to me. Yeah. But now it's just normal. And, you know, 20 years ago, it would not be normal. But now we've just accepted it's normal. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like gay marriage. That's just normal now. It's accepted. But that was really recent. Like. Well, you know, we're in they, the midst of a sustained yeah.
0: backlash, well, but I, I- Oh my God, yeah, I, don't I even do, get
1: me started on that, but I, yeah.
0: The same thing did come to mind for me where uh, another thing when I was in high school was the uh, the, the extreme paranoia in America mm-hmm. around gay people. Yeah, definitely. And then for gay marriage to be legalized by the Supreme Court yeah. it just a little over a decade later, was mind blowing to me, and then uh, you know maybe the 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 incredible hateful backlash that we're seeing mm. is is the result of yeah. that speed of social change, mm-hmm. and and some folks needing to to get out some uh, some bigotry that they were suppressing for a couple of years. Yeah. Hopefully, we're going to work through that as a society, um, and also extend you know the same tolerance to trans folks and everybody else Absolutely. that we have. But it, it, it there is a similar sense of oh, we're we're maybe dispelling some of the boogeyman of the of the 90s that we all were were sort of taught in school and, and realizing like this was this was a weird social fixation that was not serving us and yeah, that there is a definitely there is a better way out there as you lay out in your book
1: That's a really great way of putting it i wish i could write that down <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you've written down so much already yeah. <laughs> uh thank you so much for being here the name of the book is i feel love you can get it at our special bookshop at factuallypod.com slash books where you'll support not just this show but your local bookstore as well, factuallypod.com slash books. Anywhere else you want to plug, Rachel? Just thank you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I'm all out of words. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Thank you
0: so much. <laughs> well, thank you so much to Rachel for coming on the show. I hope you love that interview as much as I did. If you did, once again, you can pick up her book at factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank everybody who supports this show on Patreon, especially those who support us at the $15 a month level. I want to read some of those usernames. Well, thank you, Matt Clausen. Thank you, Nicholas Ratterman. Thank you, Sagar Mantra. Thank you, Eki, 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 Patang. <laughs> and thank you, Joseph Ginsburg. Uh, Joseph Ginsberg, work on your username, man. Eki, 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 Patang kind of outshone you a little bit. But we thank you for your support. If you want to join them, head to patreon.com slash adamcon. Over five bucks a month gives you every episode of the show ad-free. And for $15 a month, I will read your stupid username on this very podcast. Thank you so much for doing so. I also want to thank our producers, Sam Rodman and Tony Wilson, everybody here at HeadGum for helping make the show possible. You can find me online at Adam Conover wherever you get your social media or at adamconovernet dot net where you can also get my tour dates and tickets. Hope to see you on the road. Until then, see you next time on factually I don't know That was a hit gum podcast.